Chapter Sixteen of The Orphan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Orphan, by Clarence E. Mulford, Chapter Sixteen, The Flying Mare. The Sunday morning following Blake's visit to Ford Station found the Star Sea in excitement. Notwithstanding the fact that on every pleasant night after the day's work had been done it was the custom for the outfit to indulge in a swim, and that Saturday night had been very pleasant, the limping water was being violently disturbed, and laughter and splashing greeted the sun as it looked over the rim of the bank. Cakes of soap glistened on the sand on the west bank, and towels hung from convenient limbs of the bushes which fringed the creek. Silent who was noted among his companions for the length of time he could stay under water, challenged them to a submersion test. The rules were simple, inasmuch as they consisted in all plunging under at the same time, the winner being he who was the last man up. Silent had steadfastly refused to have his endurance timed, which his friends mistook for modesty, and no sooner had all ducked under than his head popped up, but this time he was not alone. Humble, whose utmost limit was not over half a minute, grew angry at his inability to make a good showing, and craftily determined to take a handicap. The two stared at each other for a space and then burst into laughter, forgetting for the time being what they should do. Other heads bobbed up, and the secret was out. Only that Silent was the best swimmer in the crowd saved him from a ducking, and as it was he had to grab his clothes and run. After being assured that he was forgiven for his trickery, he rejoined his friends and his towel. More fun was now the rule, for dressing required care. The sandy west bank sloped gradually to the water's edge, and it was necessary to stand on one foot on a small stone in the water while the other was dipped to remove the sand. Still on one foot, the other must be dried, the stocking put on, then the trouser leg and lastly the boot and woe to the man who lost his balance and splashed stocking and trouser-leg as he wildly sought to save it. Humble splashed while his foot was only halfway through the trouser-leg, and the orphan fared even worse. Then a race of awkward runners was on toward the bunkhouse, where breakfast was annihilated. "'Hey, Tom, what time do we leave?' asked Bud for the fifth time. Nine o'clock, you chump,' replied the foreman. Three whole hours yet,' grumbled Jim, as he again plastered his hair to his head. "'I'll lose my appetite, sure,' worried Humble. "'We got up too blamed early, that's what we did.' "'Why, here's Humble,' cried Silent, in mock surprise. "'Do you like apricot pie and gingerbread and real coffee?' "'You go to the devil,' grumbled Humble. You wouldn't have been asked at all, only she couldn't very well cut you out of it when she asked me along. I'm the one she really wants to feed. You fellers just happen to tag on behind, that's all." "'Going to take lightning with you, Humble?' asked Dossel, winking at the others. "'Why, sure I am,' replied Humble, in surprise. "'Do you reckon I'd leave him with that to blank chink all alone together, you sheep?' "'I was afraid you wouldn't pessimistically grumbled Dossel, but here he smiled hopefully. "'Suppose you take Lee Lung and leave the dog here,' he queried. "'Suppose you quit supposing with your feet,' sarcastically countered Humble. "'I know you ain't got much brains, 
but you might exercise what little you have got once in a while. It won't hurt you none after you get used to it." "'How are you going to carry him, Humble, like a papoose?' queried Joe, with a great show of interest. Humble stared at him. "'Huh!' he muttered, being too much astonished to say more. "'I asked you how you were going to carry your fighting wolfhound,' Joe said, without the quiver of an eyelash. I thought maybe you was going to sling him on your back like a papoose." "'Carry him! Papoose!' ejaculated Humble in withering irony. "'What do you reckon his legs are for? He ain't no statue. He ain't no ornament. He's a dog.' "'Well, I knowed he ain't no ornament, but I wasn't sure about the rest of it,' responded Joe. "'I only wanted to know how he'd get to town. There ain't no crime in asking about it, is there?' I know he can't follow the gate we'll hit up for thirty miles, so I just naturally asked, Sabi. Oh, you did, did you? cried Humble, not at all humbly. He can't follow us, can't he? he yelled belligerently. He sure can't, cross my heart, asserted Silent in great earnestness. If he runs to Ford Station after us and gets there inside of two days, I'll buy him a collar. That goes. Huh! snorted Humble in disgust. He won't wear your old collar after he wins it. He's got too much pride to wear anything you'll give him." "'He couldn't, you mean,' jabbed Jim. He's so plumb tender that it would strain his back to carry it. Why, he has to sit down and rest if more'n two flies get on the same spot at once." "'He can't wag his tail more'n three times in an hour,' added Bud. And when he scratches himself he has to rest for the remainder of the day. Humble turned to the orphan in an appealing way. "'Did you ever see so many de blank fools all at once?' he beseeched. The orphan placed his finger to his chin and thought for fully half a minute before replying. "'I was just figuring,' he explained in apology for his abstraction. Then his face brightened. "'You can tie him up in a blanket. That's the best way. Yes, sir, tie him up in a blanket and sling him at the pommel. We'll take turns carrying him." "'Purple H. Blank L!' yelled Humble. "'You're another! The whole crowd are a lot of—' "'Sing it, Humble,' suggested Tad, laughing. "'Sing it!' "'Whistle some of it, and send the rest by mail,' assisted Jack Lawson. "'Seen the dog?' came a bland, monotonous voice from the doorway, where Lee Lung stood holding a chunk of beef in one hand, while his other hand was hidden behind his back. Over his left shoulder projected half a foot of club, which he thought concealed. "'Seen the dog?' he repeated, smiling. "'Miss Mirandy and holy hell!' shouted Humble, leaping forward at the sight of the club. There was a swish, and Humble rebounded from the door, at which he stared. From the rear of the house came more monotonous words. "'Nice doggy! Plenty lightning! Here come!' get a glub!" and Humble galloped around the corner of the house, swearing at every jump. When the laughter had died down, Blake smiled grimly. "'Some day Lee will get that dog, and when he does, he'll get him good and hard. Then we'll have to get another cook. I've told him fifty times, if I've told him once, not to let it go past a joke, but it's no use. He won't hurt the cur. He's only stringing Humble said Bud, 
Nobody would hurt a dog that minded its own business. If anybody hit a dog of mine for no cause, he wouldn't do it again unless he got me first," quietly remarked the orphan. Jim hastily pointed to the corner of the house where a club projected into sight. "'There's Lee now,' he whispered hurriedly. "'He's laying for him!' There was a sudden spurt of flame and smoke, and the club flew several yards, struck by three bullets. Humble hopped around the corner holding his hand his words too profane for repetition. Smoke filtered from the orphan's holster and eyes opened wide in surprise at the wonderful quickness of his gunplay, for no one had seen it. All there was was smoke. "'Good God!' breathed Blake, staring at the marksman, who had stepped forward and was explaining to Humble. "'It's a good thing Shields was square,' he muttered. "'Did you see that?' asked Bud of Jim in whispered awe and I thought I was some beans with a six-shooter. "'No, but I heard it. Was they one or six? replied Jim. "'I didn't know it was you, Humble,' explained the orphan. "'I thought it was the chink laying for the dog.' "'Blank, blank! Good for you!' cried Humble in sudden friendliness. "'You're all right, orphan, but will you be sure next time? That stung like blazes,' he said as he held out his hand. I can always tell a white man by the way he treats a dog. If all men were as good as dogs, this world would be a blame sight nicer place to live in, and don't you forget it." "'Still going to take lightning with you, Humble?' asked Bud. "'No, I ain't going to take lightning with me,' snapped Humble. "'I'm going to leave him right here on the ranch.' Here his voice arose to a roar. And if any sing-song, rope-haired, animated, hash-rassler gets gay while I'm gone, I'll send him to his heathen hell!" "'Come on, boys,' said Blake, snapping his watch shut. "'Time to get going!' "'Glory be!' exulted Silent, executing a few fancy steps toward the corral, his companions close behind, with the exception of the orphan, who had gone into the bunkhouse for a minute. As they whooped their way toward the town, Blake noticed that a gold pin glittered at the knot of the new recruit's neckerchief, and he chuckled when he recalled the warning he had given to the sheriff. He shrewdly guessed that the apricot pie and the rest of the feast were quite subordinated by the orphan to the girl who had given him the pin. Bud suddenly turned in his saddle and pointed to a jackrabbit which bounded away across the plain like an animated shadow. Now if Humble's bloodhound was only here, he said, we would rope that jack and make the cur fight it. It would be a fine fight, all right, he laughed. You go to the devil, grunted Humble, and he started ahead at full speed. Come on, he cried, come on, you snails, and a race was on. The citizens of Ford Station saw a low-hanging cloud of dust which rolled rapidly up from the west and soon a hard-riding crowd of cowboys, in gala attire, galloped down the main street of the town. They slowed to a canter and rode abreast in a single line, the arms of each man over the shoulders of his nearest companions, and all sang at the top of their lungs. On the right end rode Blake, and on the left was the orphan. Bill Howland ran out into the street and spotted his new friend immediately, and swung his hat and cheered for the man who had helped him out of two bad holes. The orphan broke from the line and shook hands with the driver, his face wreathed by a grin. 
"'You old son of a gun!' cried Bill, delighted at the familiarity from so noted a person as the former outlaw. "'How are you, hey?' The line cried warm greeting as it swung around to shake his hand, and the driver's chest took on several inches of girth. "'Hello, Bill!' cried Bud with a laugh. "'Seen your old friend Tex lately?' "'Yes, I did,' replied Bill. "'I saw him out on thirty-mile stretch. But he didn't do nothing but swear. He didn't want no more run-ins with me, all right, and besides, my rifle was across my knees. He said as how he was going to come back some day and start things moving about this old town, and I told him to begin with the Star Sea when he did." He looked across the street and waved his hand at a group of friends who were looking on. "'Come on over, fellows!' he cried, and when they had done so, he turned and introduced the orphan to them. This ugly cuss here is Charlie Winter, this slab-sided curiosity is Tommy Larkin, and here is his brother Al. Chet Dare, Duke Irwin, Frank Hicks, Hoke Jones, Gus Shaw, and Roy Purvis. All good fellows, every one of them, and all friends of the sheriff. Here comes Jed Carr, the only man in the whole town who ain't afraid of me since I licked them punchers in the defile. Hello, Jed! Shake hands with the man who played H blank L with the crossbar eight and the Apaches. Glad to meet you, orphan, remarked Jed as he shook hands. Punching for the Star Sea, eh? Good crowd, most of them, as they run, though humble ain't very much. He ain't, ain't he? grinned that puncher. You're some sore about that day when I cleaned up all your cush at poker, ain't you? Ain't had time to get over it, have you? Want to borrow some?" "'You want to look out for Humble, Jed,' bantered Bud. "'He's taken a lesson at poker from our cook since he played you. Didn't you, Easy?' he asked Humble. The roar of laughter which followed Bud's words forced Humble to stand treat. "'Come on over and have something with the only man in the crowd that's got any money,' he said. When they had lined up against the bar, jokes began to fly thick and fast and the orphan felt a peculiar elation steal over him as he slowly puffed at his cigar. Suddenly the door flew open and Bill's glass dropped from his hand. "'Bucknail, by God! And as drunk as a fool!' he exclaimed. The puncher whom the orphan had tied up above the defile leaned against the door-frame, and his gun wavered from point to point unsteadily as he tried to peer into the dim interior of the room, his face leering as he sought with a courage born of drink for the man who had made a fool of him. A bottle crashed against the wall at his side, and as he lurched forward, glancing at the broken glass, a figure leaped to meet him, and with agile strength grasped his right wrist, wheeled and got his shoulder under Bucknell's armpit, took two short steps, and straightened up with a jerk. The intruder left the floor, and flew head foremost through the air, crashing against the rear wall where he fell to the floor and lay quiet. The orphan, having forsworn unnecessary gunplay, and always scorning to shoot a drunken man, had executed a clever, quick flying mare. As the sheriff stepped into the room, Blake ran forward and lifted Bucknell to his feet, supporting him until he could stand alone. The puncher was greatly sobered by the shock and blinked confusedly about him. The orphan was smoking nonchalantly at the bar, and Bill had just given the sheriff the victim's gun. "'What's the matter?' 
asked Bucknell, rubbing his forehead, which was cut and bruised. "'Nothing's the matter yet,' answered Shields shortly. "'But there would have been if you hadn't been too drunk to know what you was doing. I saw you and tried to get here first, but it's all right now. Take your gun and get out. Here,' he exclaimed, "'you promise me to behave yourself and you can go back to Sneed, for he needs you. Otherwise it's out of the country after Tex for you. Is it a go?' "'What was that? And who done it?' asked Bucknell, clinging to the bar. "'What was it?' he repeated. "'That was me trying to throw you through the wall,' said the sheriff, wishing to give Bucknell no greater cause for animosity against the orphan, and for the peace of the community, and also because he wished to help the orphan to refrain from using his gun in the future. "'And I'd have done it, too, only my hand was sweaty. "'Will you do what I said?' he asked. Bucknell straightened up and staggered past the sheriff to where the orphan stood. "'You done that. But it's all right, ain't it?' he asked. "'You ain't sore, are you?' His eyes had a crafty look, but the dimness of the room concealed it, and the orphan did not notice the look. "'It's all right, Bucknell. I ain't sore,' he replied. "'I won't be sore if you do what the sheriff wants you to.' "'All right. All right.' replied Bucknell. Have a drink on me, boys. It's all right now, ain't it? Have a drink on me." "'No more drinking today,' quickly said the bartender, at a look from Shields. "'All the good stuff is used up, and the rest ain't fit for dogs, let alone my friends. Wait till next time, when I'll have some new.' "'That's too de-blanked bad,' replied Bucknell, leering at the crowd. "'Have a smoke, then.' Come on, have a smoke with me." "'We sure will, Bucknell,' responded Shields quickly. As the cowboy started for the door, the sheriff placed a hand on his shoulder. "'You behave yourself, Bucknell,' he said. "'So long.'" End of chapter 16